I want to thank Research Consultants International for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion in projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about research consultants. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic development organizations. Call them now. They can help you create real prospects. Welcome to this week's episode of the Next Move Group We Are Jobs podcast. This is Chad Chancellor, co-founder of Next Move Group. Today our guest is Trey Hairston. Trey's a member of Butler Snow Law Firm's Public Finance Tax Incentive and Credits Markets Group. So before becoming a lawyer, Trey worked for the Mississippi Development Authority in a business development position. So he has seen economic development from the state recruiting side and now on the public bond finance inside. Trey's given TED Talks before, gives speeches at IEDC and the bond buyer recognize him as a rising star uh, for folks under the age of 40. So Trey, uh, thank you for being with us today. Absolutely. Well, Trey, I know last year you gave a talk at IEDC that the question was, is economic development enough? And now that the COVID-19 has hit us, my question for you to start us off would be, is economic development enough in a postmodern COVID-19 society? Yeah, I don't know, Chad. I think it's probably not going to be enough. The traditional approach to economic development, what we've done in the past, is going to take a lot, a lot more ingenuity, a lot more creativity. I think there's been a certain segment of the population in America that's been disproportionately affected by COVID. You know, the way we approach things will probably have to be a lot more inclusive. It will have to look at you know, affordable housing, it will have to look at affordable, you know, transportation, the different ways that we we approach transportation. As you've seen and probably heard, artificial intelligence will be a a huge dynamic going into this postmodern COVID nineteen society that we will now face. The modes and the apparatus in terms of how we travel for tourism or business, airplanes, I think so many things will be different. It's just a matter of how do we make sure we don't lose, leave people behind. Trey, give our listeners sort of a perspective of a day in your life. So I know you do deals from hotels and conference center to sports parks to theaters, medical and health care, manufacturing, arts and entertainment centers. So you really see from a holistic approach, kind of everything that cities and counties are trying to do and even done some work on the private side. So to set up kind of your perspective, why don't you give these folks a day in your life? Sure. You know, I cut my teeth in economic development in early 2000. I was a project manager 
in the business development division at the Mississippi Development Authority in Mississippi. And that's when I first really fell in love with the idea of economic development. Of course, I then went on to, to get an MBA and go to law school, but I always came back to economic development. And so my practice, you know, with respect to public finance and bonds and debt instruments and securities, it's just another tool in terms of financing projects from a public perspective. And then from the private side of the transaction, I represent a lot of developers, a lot of companies that are seeking to locate either in Mississippi or within Butler Snow's footprint, which is primarily in the Southeast. However, we've got some flags in Denver that are pretty significant, New York. But in any event, a day in the life, it ranges from anything pertaining to some of the municipalities that we represent that may have a project that they want to see undertaken, whether it's your traditional economic development, logistics, manufacturing, maybe it's an EDO that we represent. And so how do you get cash money into that project? in a legal way. And so there, there are numerous ways to do that. There are numerous incentives that are always on the books, but there's also your traditional public finance and that's debt that's generally securitized by sales tax or the general fund of a, a municipality or a county or a parish or the general obligation of that particular jurisdiction. So from hotels to you know your your mainstream projects, I'm either on the public side or sometimes the private side. And when I'm on the private side, I have a really good perspective of what an EDO or a state can and cannot do. Or can we create something brand new through legislation that allows that particular company to explore some of the incentives that they're trying to, to really execute on? You know, Trey, you don't find many people in bond council finance now who got their start on the economic development side as a state recruiter. So there are probably a lot of folks around the country saying, I wish that I had a Trey Harrison in my state. So are you hearing any talks yet of reshoring? There's a lot of talks about reshoring of certain goods to the U.S. And are you hearing any maybe uh, stuff coming out of the state legislature or Washington, D.C.? of uh, regulations or incentives, either one that might force some of this stuff or incent some of this uh, production to come back to the U.S.? Or do you think it's too soon to even start thinking about that? So it's not too soon. And we have a presence in D.C. Governor Barber is of counsel to Butler Snow, and he also runs one of the most successful lobbying firms in the country, BGR, Barber Griffith and Rogers. During the 2017 Tax Reform Act, we were involved. We had comments on opportunity zones, et cetera. And so with that being said, we're looking at federal legislation that will enhance perhaps a company's ability to move capital and move assets here to the state. You know, sometimes it might be something that's not as job intensive as economic developers. It's the job, you know, that that's where we're we're focusing, but some of this is probably going to be asset and equipment intensive. And so how do you, in the this post-COVID-19 society where artificial intelligence and things like that, where equipment is being leveraged and financed, how do you develop incentives around those particular things? We're beginning to, as a firm, look at the various companies that have a tremendous amount of assets 
overseas, maybe in China or in other Asian countries throughout that region. And we're looking uh, not only at their assets, but we're looking at their supply chains to really determine globally what's being the most affected. One thing that I'm seeing is your, you know, the pharmaceutical additive ingredient companies seeing a lot of that because as you noted, you know, gowns, syringes, the widgets, I mean, all of those things that form the components of that supply chain, we have to have it and we have to have it quickly. And so not to sound braggadocious, but I, I gave a TED talk chat in 2014 that talked about this very thing that healthcare is an economic driver. And I firmly believe it. The healthcare economy in this post-COVID society is going to flourish. We've already known that telemedicine is, is coming. It's a real thing. But from your public-private standpoint, I really think your 5G rural broadband is going to be extremely significant. I think that you're going to see a lot of effort. Their books have been written over time from good to great, talking about these different areas and sectors in urban America that are really booming. I think you're going to see perhaps a turn back to rural America. And so it'll be really important to build these infrastructures from both a private and a government standpoint that allow for technology to really flow. Back to the central question, I do think incentives both at the federal and state level legislation that allows for those types of economies to be able to be facilitated are going to be vitally important. What are your thoughts on public debt, Trey? So I'm worried sick about sales tax and the, the money that cities and counties and states are going to be losing from this uh, COVID recession, even if we started back full board tomorrow, which we know we're not. Think of the sales tax that's been lost for the last two months. And states were already struck. Kentucky was already struggling with retirement liabilities and so forth. And so with interest rates at a record low, do you think a lot of cities and counties are going to refinance debt? And what would you say to uh, to the mayors out there who may say, you know, that they're worried they're not going to have enough money to support economic development because that lack of sales tax coming in is is now time to really look at refinancing debt? It's it's a real thing, Chad. I mean, that is, you know, from the standpoint of, yes, we want the projects, we want the development, we want to be able to help incentivize the creation of these new jobs that we anticipate will be coming back on shore here to the state. But from a public standpoint, do we even have the capital? Do we have the revenue? Do we have the sales tax? Do we have all of the, those normal tools that we normally would in place. And so you're, you're exactly right. You know, just on yesterday, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, its chairman, Jay Clayton, and the Municipal Securities Director, Rebecca Olson, issued a notice regarding the importance of disclosure for municipal markets. It's a real thing. So with respect to, you know, corporate debt or corporate securities, you have some of the same features with respect to the public debt. This current COVID-19 time that we're currently in, there's a lot of disclosure and a lot of due diligence and a lot of analysis that goes into how you're structuring debt. Because at the end of the day, it's the bondholders that are going to purchase that debt. And you want to make sure there are no material misstatements. You want to make sure you have accurate cash flows. You know, I'm working on a couple of transactions. I'm working on one that is a pretty significant water sewer transaction 
which is vital to economic development. And then I'm working on a sales tax transaction where the bonds are going to be secured by 1% sales tax. From you know a securitization standpoint, you want to put things in the documents, debt coverage ratio. You may want to get bond insurance. You might want to get a debt service reserve fund. With respect to those debt coverage ratios, I mean, maybe a three to one. I mean, you want to make sure that you're signaling to bondholders that there's sufficient cash and sufficient sales tax to be able to pay debt service in this particular moment. But in a post-COVID moment, you want to look at that as well. And it's a, it's a real thing. And so when you get that admonishment from the SEC or that notice from the SEC like that, you want to make sure as lawyers, as financial advisors, as underwriters, all of the deal professionals in a transaction like that, that you're giving accurate, timely, factual disclosure pertaining to any types of securities that are being issued during this moment in time. Thank you, Trey. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners, and we'll be back with a lot more with Trey Harrison right after this. I'm excited to tell you that in mid-May, we're expanding our movement to create economic growth by building a community of like-minded economic developers that works to grow our profession and our economy all at once. As we beeline towards 20% unemployment, America needs a community of economic developers right now more than we've ever needed it before to get us out of this mess economically when the COVID-19 subsides. So be on the lookout for more information on this in the coming weeks. Trey, what do you think cities and counties are going to need to do with their incentives agreements? So, you know, a company, let's say a company announced within the last year or so that they were going to locate a new facility and create X amount of jobs, and they did all of that in good faith, and then the, the COVID-19 situation hits and they're not able to hit all those jobs. How do you think economic developers, cities, counties, states, and so forth ought to be considering what to do with their clawbacks and recapture clauses and what to do with those incentives agreements? Chad, there are a couple of ways to approach it or attack it. You can come at it from the standpoint of taking action as a state, a state EDO, and maybe looking at global global announcements or global restructuring of those incentive agreements that are already in place. So with respect to construction complete by this date, maybe it's a global everybody gets an additional two years. And that's something you have to look at your unique state the unique construction timeline, you know, employees, all of those different things to really deduce where you should be in moving that goalpost back. With respect to jobs and job creation, I think that's more of a really case-by-case basis. It's going to require a lot of work. (laughs) It's funny, you know, regulators and some of the, the back office economic development at your state EDOs, they're, you know, they're rigid and they're supposed to be because they're supposed to protect, you know, taxpayer dollars and regulators like to regulate. So there's not a lot going on right now. But what I would say is I think they, you know, these EDOs, the state and local EDOs, they ought to pull every single incentive agreement, MOU, all of those, those mechanisms that keep these deals in place. And they really ought to examine them based on, you know, markets, you know, food processing, logistics, certain things aren't going to be impacted as much, and certain things are. My hotel client, I would argue and implore 
EDOs from the state or local level to give as much leniency to those particular clients and folks in the tourism sector, give them as much leniency as possible because it's just an industry that's really been, been impacted. If you've got companies that are impacted by air travel, that are high impact, face-to-face service oriented, that's something that I think you need to really dig into and put some mechanisms in place that, you know, there are benchmarks that have the benchmarks, but that has some leniency because, you know, we want a resilient economy. We want an economy that's going to bounce back. This is not going to be an overnight thing. I think this is going to take a significant amount of time to, to bounce back. And we've got to be really creative and we've all got to be in this together. Trey, you mentioned the cities that live off tourism and maybe, you know, what what kind of a time they're going to have or what to do with their incentives agreements. And I think of New Orleans, you love it like I do. And if you've been here lately, you know, there's cranes in the sky all over the place. There were all kind of mixed-use developments being built. A lot of those being financed with uh, through tools to where they could pay back the portions of bonds through sales tax and property tax increase and so forth. And then this hits. And so every event in New Orleans has been canceled through the end of the year. There's talks of uh, the NFL not having home fans, and so if, if that's the case, there will be no no bodies in hotel rooms in New Orleans probably until next Mardi Gras. It would be next Mardi Gras before we had another event. And, you know, last weekend would have been Jazz Fest, have a hotel room, and the city would have been full. And so you you, you just worry about the, the retailers, the hotels, the bars, and, and whatnot, uh, not only in New Orleans but in other places that really survive off of tourism and people – people coming to town yeah chad i mean i think like i said initially i don't think COVID 19 is affecting all cities the same all demographics of our country the same all of our businesses the same there are some that are being you know hit harder than than others and cities like new orleans cities like shreveport cities like las vegas i've spent a lot of time in las vegas the fourth quarter of 2019 as you know they are doing everything in their power to to diversify their economy and their things in place and then you you get hit by COVID-19 and you see exactly how difficult it is just to rely on one particular segment gaming and it's completely shut down right now there's a lot of online activity I think you'll see a lot more of the virtual gaming when I was in Vegas last, I was on a fam tour with the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance, and they brought a lot of industry experts from gaming in, and they were just talking about 10, 15 years from now, the huge stadiums where you had lots of people watching a football game, it might be two kids gaming as opposed to football. And so I think, I mean, lots of different things are going to change. We'll do things differently All people, all cities, all companies are affected differently by this. And so based on that, I think EDOs seeking the advice of, you know, firms like yours, firms like Vision First, law firms that can help them come in and do that incentive compliance in a uniform fashion and, you know, do the right analysis to not leave any money on the table, but at the same time, not disproportionately impact or hurt business. It's really important. It's a unique, it's a scary time as well, but I, I do think it's one that we can pull out of. 
Trey, you mentioned Vision First and Gray Swoop. He was on our show two or three weeks ago, and they do a great job. And I've been sharing a whole lot of his LinkedIn's about what to do during disasters because he and Governor Barber got in Mississippi after Katrina as far as the economic recovery, and they did a great job. And so I've been sharing all of all of his various stuff. And uh, also you talk about health care, and I think that's very smart. I mean, I think that uh, now that we've gone through this situation, I, I just think that medical devices are going to be reshored, everything from the – the, uh, the expensive medical devices down to the gowns and masks. And as that happens, there'll be more distribution. I think some pharmaceuticals will be reshored. And New Orleans was already growing from health care, if you just think about the investments the hospitals and all have made down here. And as much as I love New Orleans, we're an unhealthy society. We like to have a good time and eat and drink. And, and uh, so it just makes sense to me that both here and, and through a lot of rural towns, health care will be the growth area that comes out of this because I don't think any of us envision We'd have such a hard time getting basic health care supplies through this time. So I think your point about the health care being the growth sector when we get uh, out of this deal makes perfect sense to me. I do not disagree with you, my friend, and it's something I've been preaching for a while. In a state, in a state like mine, which is not necessarily too terribly different from Louisiana, where diabetes and obesity is prevalent, I've always made the argument to turn a weakness into a strength, you've really got to focus on that weakness. And if weakness is obesity and diabetes, I'm not the one to necessarily throw to throw money at a problem. But if we are going to spend money, I think you check numerous boxes by delving into high-tech research, leveraging your medical centers and your hospitals to do exactly that to create jobs and research and new pathologies and new ways of testing and approaching things around your weaknesses. And at the same time, you know, we have these comorbidities in states like Mississippi where you may die from, you know, and I'm, I'm sounding morbid right now, but you may die from a heart attack, but ultimately it was brought on by maybe obesity, diabetes, or some other ailment or disease that you're experiencing. So I say all that from a standpoint of worker productivity. When you have workers that are perhaps in a plant or working in logistics, when they don't feel well, they're not the best employee that they could be. I mean, you can create jobs around this ancillary healthcare economy where you're producing these widgets where maybe you're developed a new, you know, insulin, you've developed a new way to inject that insulin. And all of that's done at the top. So my argument is by focusing on the research component in a state like ours, where you can have some of the PhDs, the medical professionals at the top of that work sector, employment sector, food chain, all the way down to the individuals that are making it. And so there's a way to do that. And I think this is something that you're going to see implemented in, in lots of different communities throughout America. Obviously, all states are different. You know, we can pay lower wages in a state like Mississippi or Louisiana, where you may have a higher number of PhDs in a state like Massachusetts. But there's going to be a a marriage and a bridging of that where we've all heard the arguments about quality of life, etc. You're going to see that. You're going to see a turn into rural America in this post-COVID-19 society. I think if 
states like Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, et cetera, are really holistic and really look at is economic development truly enough? Are we truly looking at areas like the Mississippi Delta, the Louisiana Delta, studying how we can bring those parts of our state's economy all up together? I think you'll have that. I think you'll have that quality of life component where instead of in the next census, you'll see more individuals coming south. You know, Mike Randall, who writes Southern Businesses and Development, talks a lot about how the South is going to be the next maven for development in this post-COVID society. And I agree with him. His last report went into great detail, and I really feel like you're going to see a lot of development in the Southeast. Thank you, Trey. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners, and we'll be back with a lot more with Trey Harrison right after this. I want to thank Location One. Some folks know it as Lois for sponsoring today's podcast. Location One has, in my opinion, the best buildings and sites database in the economic development industry. And now that coronavirus is hidden and everything's been disrupted, I've been thinking a lot about if I were an economic developer still, what would I do during this time? And I know without question. I would transition to Lois and get my buildings and sites as updated as I possibly could so that when we come out of this economic downturn, we're ready to go. Let me tell you why I like Lois. Uh, It is the most responsive, mobile-friendly buildings and sites database I have found. It's easy to use. It's just as easy to use on an iPad or iPhone as it is a computer. I was browsing around last week uh, on a a state economic development building and site database, and the thing, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't work properly. You had to be an engineer to figure it out. It was too much. It had this circle you could draw to look at buildings. The circle wouldn't work. When I backed out, it forgot what square footage I was looking for. None of that happens with Lois. This is the best buildings and sites database I have found. I've looked far and wide. It is the most easy to use from a site selection standpoint on any platform. I'm told it's just as easy to use for economic developers, that it really walks you through inserting your information and putting it in so that prospects can use it. So I really encourage you, take a look at location1.com. Use this time while we're down to update your buildings and sites. Transition them to location one. You'll be really happy you did. I think you're right. I was talking to somebody the other day from Alabama, and we were just talking about within Alabama. If you think about UAB and Birmingham has all those research physicians, we've done a lot of work in a little town called Monroeville. And Monroeville used to have all kind of textiles. They had a huge Vanity Fair textile production plant, and they even had on the weekends that they would make it into a, like an outlet mall. People would drive in from miles away. I've talked to people all over Alabama who've been to that mall in Monroeville and so it's just mind-blowing to me with the research physicians we have and with the facilities we have that, that we can't even produce things as uh, as simple as masks and gloves and now with the testing you know I'm watching you know what a sports fan I am and I'm listening in the sports leagues I'll say we'll go back to to work when we can have enough tests to test all the players you know we'll go back without fans so long as the players all test negatively and sounds like we can't even get enough tests produced which is just mind-blowing in the United States, that we can't get enough tests produced to test anybody that needs one when you consider the facilities manufacturing that rural America used to have and the Ph.D. expertise we have 
in the medical sector. But let's not talk all COVID and be all doom and gloom. You're too good of a guest to make this whole thing about COVID. So let's transition now to just basic economic development. You have seen it from all sides, from being a state project manager to now bond council on huge deals. So talk about, in your opinion, what really makes a town successful in economic development? Are there any common themes that you have seen that where, you know, if, if towns do these certain common things or just traits they have, then, uh, then they have more of a chance to be successful than others? This applies to any natural disaster or COVID or whatever. I think cash is king. Having a good balance sheet as the leader of an EDO or the leader of a, a city, as a mayor, as a member of the council, cash is king, and you want to make sure you've got a healthy balance sheet that you're able to really manage things from a financial standpoint. And so starting there, I mean, how do you make sure you even have a, a healthy balance sheet? Well, you, you've got to have a really good, diverse set of companies that are in your community. And so building on that, how do you even get these companies? Well, going back to the something that I mentioned earlier, and that's quality of life. You've got to check all of those boxes. And there's a good place to start in terms of just your fundamental understanding of what you're trying to do with respect to your community and having an identity. Certain communities are known for certain things. And, and that's fair. That's fair game. If you know, having that plan that you put in place, that SWOT analysis saying we're going to focus in this particular target industry and going after it. At the end of the day, I think successful communities, you know, are built on leadership, creativity, resiliency. When when something bad happens, you know, you, you're always going to have some type of storm or natural disaster, the resiliency after the storm. But at the heart of any community is its people and why people might gravitate to that respective community is of utmost importance. I'm seeing it around the country, communities like Tulsa, where they're really focusing on families first. I think that's, you know, extremely vital. And it's, it's important to any young family in terms of where they can raise their children. I think from any economic development standpoint, all those pillars from quality of life to having a healthy a balance sheet, et cetera, are, are really important tools that you should have in your tool bag. Trey, I know you made some presentations and done some research on housing and maybe what role should economic developers play in housing. And last year I was up in the Midwest for the College World Series and went to small towns in Iowa and Nebraska and really saw here their community development foundations participated in building subdivisions they had programs to wear for millennials if they came back and bought a house if they had college degrees then they would help pay a down payment to try to attract back you know the brain drain problem try to attract back college educated people and so in some of our big cities there have been uh, different public finance applied to housing you know from everything from condos to apartments and whatnot but i hadn't seen a whole lot especially in the south southern towns do that nearly as much as the midwest towns have so Give us your opinion on maybe how economic developers ought to be part of the housing conversation. I just think, again, it goes back to your previous question about communities and what makes a community successful. Those are all assets that you need. I'm beginning to look at economic development in a non-traditional way. I used to lecture, I plan to do it, and it'll probably be online, but 
lecturing in the Masters in Economic Development program at the University of Southern Miss. And one of the lectures was just the, the basics, the 101 of economic development. I kept defining economic development. I defined it by, you know, the Supreme Court opinion in Kelo versus the city of New London and where the court said that, you know, economic development is tries to carefully formulate a development plan that would provide appreciable benefits to the community, including but not limited to new jobs and increased tax revenue. Yeah, that's a very basic rudimentary definition of economic development. But at the heart of it, to be able to do those two things, to create new jobs and increase tax revenue, you've got to have a place for folks to live. And in this new approach, postmodern way to approach economic development and answering the question, is economic development enough? No. The traditional just create jobs, no, that's not enough. We've got to be focused on housing. We've got to be focused on, you know, developing communities. We've got to be focused you know, maybe even on, on mixed use and retail development. I, I think the job of the economic developer is so hybrid and so multifaceted all the way from education to affordable housing and making sure that it's plentiful in that particular area. Some of our, our largest, most robust cities in America, housing is a major issue. New York, where it's very difficult to find a, a decent affordable place to live, or San Francisco. When I was lecturing the students, I made it a point to reference economic development and community development, and I distinguished the two, and someone raised their hand and said, wait, hold on. What is the difference between economic development and community development? Well, there is a difference. That piece that I talked about in terms of the retail, the nonprofits that are out engaged in maybe helping the, the veteran population with jobs or the homeless population. I think in this post-COVID-19 society, it's going to require our economic developers to wear many hats and affordable housing and understanding the incentives that make affordable housing work. You know, for example, opportunity zones and how to leverage and twin all of the multiple incentives that are available is going to be important for the economic developer. And the ones that truly embrace that, that non-traditional approach that engage in trying to find ways to make their incentives that would perhaps focus strictly on manufacturing, where their incentives can look at other sectors, housing, et cetera, I think those will be the most successful ones in the future. Well, Trey, as we wind down, is there anything you wish I would have asked you that I didn't, or is there any last-minute tips or advice you'd give to our listeners? Not so much as a tip, but more of a fingers crossed and prayer that we have a Kentucky Derby in May 2021 because that's that's one of my favorites. I don't know if it's a hobby. When I win and when I'm betting on a horse, it's, it's more like a, a celebration. When I lose, I don't know what it is at that point, but I guess that's my question for you. Will there be a Kentucky Derby with fans in September, Chad? What do you think? What are the odds? Well, Trey, I do think they'll run in September, and I think there'll be fans at Churchill Downs. I don't know that there'll be 200,000 people in there, as you well know. 
they packed that track. <laughs> you know, some of those quarters are pretty tight for folks that haven't been to Churchill Downs for the Kentucky Derby. Uh, on Derby Day, you can hardly move around that place. So I would be shocked if they have a normal crowd that they've been having come come Derby Day. Uh, but I, I'm not going to go. Uh, I've been to eight or nine in a row. I can't remember how many. And it's always literally probably my favorite day of the year. But I think doing it in September, there's something about that that it just doesn't feel the same to me. So I'm going to wait and go again next May, which which will have me really raring and ready to go for Kentucky Derby in 2021. But my prediction, yes, they'll run in September, and they will have fans, but I don't think it'll be anywhere near as crowded as normal. Yeah, I agree with you. There's normally a lot of folks that attend that race, but it's, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I will hopefully see you in Louisville in 2021, my friend. Yeah, I think that's the last time I saw you. I might have seen you in New Orleans once. I can't remember if I saw you in New Orleans before or after, but I, I remember seeing you at the Derby last year. I didn't know you were there, and I saw on Facebook you were there and came down and found you. Then we got to hang out a little bit that night in uh, in downtown Louisville after the Derby was over. And I'll tell you, this week I was really sad Friday and Saturday because, you know, the Derby, it's a whole other event. It's a three- or four-day event, and you go to all kind of parties and different things. And so I was sad throughout that whole process, probably – the Friday night before Derby is kind of my favorite night. There's just an electricity in the air, so I was sad through all that. But then about 8 o'clock Saturday night, I got over it fast because the Derby was over. And as you know, you, you spend three or four days and months getting ready for it. And, and then in two minutes, it's over with. And it's all over and you go home. You know, what's even worse is uh, the weather was absolutely perfect this year. Remember how bad it rained last year? I think it's rained three years in a row this year the weather was absolutely perfect i had friends in louisville texting me pictures of the weather saying what a great day it was it's a fun time i, I drank mint juleps on saturday and toasted to the 2020 derby the 146 supposed running that was done virtual well trey thank you for joining us and i hope to see you before next year's derby but if not i hope to see you in louisville in 2021 at the derby because that'll mean we're having it and there are fans and they'll be off to the races Outstanding. Look forward to seeing you. All righty. Thank you, sir. If you want to join our movement, which is to create economic growth for small to mid-sized companies, communities, and nonprofit organizations, please go to our website at thenextmovegroup.com. Browse around, and you can see the different services we offer, all designed to create that economic growth for the small to mid-sized companies, communities, and nonprofit organizations. Most of our leads and growth has come from word-of-mouth referrals. So even if you don't need a service, we want you to know what we do. So when friends and contacts of yours might need something, you know what we do and you can refer us. So again, go to thenextmovegroup.com to learn more about the Next Move Group.